to positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. It's another week of America's only Halloween socialism podcast. That's right. We release one episode a year. Once a year. Um, the King of Skeletons. I mean, every day is its own year, and every day is Halloween, if you think about it. That's how we look at things over at Poddamn America. And if you're listening uh, today, um, congratulations. You've made it to Halloween. Congratulations. Yeah. Another year. I'm excited for it this year. I'm usually a half-assed Halloween costume person. Uh, that is usually what I do. I've been known to... Do you have something planned? No. Th- so this year I'm going all out. That's the plan. Anyway. Really? It will probably end up being half-assed, knowing me. But You going all out. For Halloween, yeah. I usually don't go all out for Halloween. La- actually, last year I did. Last year I did this too, because that's what you got to do when you have a girlfriend. You go as a couple, and you have to have a fun costume, fun costume couple. Uh, this year, this is her idea. She has the great, she's the best ideas. Please don't keep costumes. me waiting any longer. She Please tell me what it is. She is going to be one Jeffrey Epstein, and I'm going to be Gislaine Maxwell. We're going as Jeff and Gislaine. Folks, welcome back to the show. Uh, I'm your host for the week, Alex Patak. I'm here with Anders Lee. <laughs> You may know him as Gislaine Maxwell from his couple costume, making light of the serial sexual assaults. Well, okay, by the Illuminati. Okay, well, I had to. I talk, l- listen, hear me out. I talked her down because she wanted okay. me to go as a victim. She wanted me to go as one of the. Wow. Yeah, that is a terrible idea. What the fuck would that look like? You just just dress up like Amanda Palmer. <laughs> That's a, just wear a body bag? I, Holy fuck. Well, it would have been my costume last year. Last year, and again, girlfriend's idea, not mine. Uh-huh. She uh-huh. was Osama bin Laden, and I was <laughs> I was one of his virgins. Uh, and so I wore a dress. Okay. And wow. Naomi does not fuck around for Halloween, huh? Yeah. she. You know, I guess when you're a Middle Eastern woman, uh, uh-huh. you don't have you no don't walk around it. with a chip in your shoulder. You just go for the funniest thing. Um, wow, just liberated. Well, as a white man, the most that I can do is listen. Mm-hmm. That's all. Yeah. What am I gonna correct her? No. And, you know, you have to dress up as a murdered sexual assault victim <laughs> <laughs> and go around and ask for candy. <laughs> well, okay, Gislaine. <laughs> Gislaine was in on it. She's a, a baddie <laughs> as well. She. That's true. You're punching up. Yeah. Yeah. She's right. yet to be apprehended. Uh, we'll see what happens. I actually um, don't know what what I'm going to do because it is uh, I'm on a show, but it's not a themed show and I don't really want to dress up. Do the bare minimum. And that's if you're a fan of the show, reply to this episode do. with your half-assed Halloween costumes. Have, did you go as as I have done Hunter S. Thompson? one year mm-hmm. and all you do is wear a hawaiian shirt i've done that before maybe you've been sigmund freud I and all you did was wear glasses that are not even round 
Um, <laughs> maybe you've just gone as quote unquote myself and annoyed yeah. everyone at the party. You've gone. To. That one sucks the most. It's so so obnoxious. Hey, I got a costume for you. It's America dressing up as a democracy for 200 years. (laughs) Is that someone fascist clothes? (laughs) Uh, You know, you know, it'd be good. Man's podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You know, what would be good is if I just went, if I just went as the problem and I was myself. (laughs) In a way, you kind of always dress up as the problem. Yeah. Yeah, I look yeah. like the problem. Uh, problem, but I want any more. I have to get my hair cut because I actually have longer hair right now than Gislaine. But um, though, well, that's an important sure segue. It's a good segue too. Uh, today's big news, which is an Epstein family physician, um, is dish. Oh, this is huge. Yeah, did you see this? The yeah. physician for the family Epstein is saying that it was definitely murder. Some foul play was involved. I know we're getting breaking news that Jeffrey Epstein might have been murdered. <laughs> yeah, I know you you've already made your peace with the passing of a friend, but <laughs> there might have been foul play involved. I mean, did I'm, you... I'm just I'm wondering if maybe we will have to investigate a little further now. Right. If only there were like podcasts that were talking about this, you know, right. I, I guess I meant uh, somebody who uh, has some impact on the world and not a series of comedians on their socialist podcast. But yeah, that would be good too. <laughs> We're, We're doing important work. Investigation of the Epstein uh, possible murder. He was why is no one pushing why is no one pushing Bernie to personally solve the Epstein murders <laughs> in a Scooby-Doo style situation? I just want to bring your attention to a photo that was taken by a drone of Little St. James Island. It shows a man with uh, salt and pepper hair hours after Epstein's death. Looks very I'm much. I'm sorry like- to bother you. My van has merely broken down outside your house. <laughs> if it wouldn't be too much trouble, my, myself, my teenage friends, and my talking dog companion stay <laughs> at your home just for the evening and we figure a few things out. <laughs> yeah. That may be something that could happen. Uh, yeah. I would love to see him going on the case. That's what would happen if we, when we solve all the problems that he wants to fix, that's what I can see him like getting, going down in a basement somewhere and doing the yarn thing and uh, trying to connect the dots on the Epstein business. Regardless of whether he becomes a detective, his future in any situation involves yarn. (laughs) We can agree with that, right? Yeah. The man just seems like he has access to yarn. Yeah. Um, that's what he's going to offer guests in the Oval Office instead of like a drink or coffee, a cigarette, as some presidents did. He's going to offer a ball of yarn big... to play with. <laughs> I was, was going to say like a big Castro cigar. Yeah. <laughs> since we'll have a new Marxist turn for Hopefully. the United Snakes of America. <laughs> um, in comedy it. news... Since we're a bit of a dual purpose podcast between. Uh, I'm sorry. I did you, I don't know if you got the memo, but we have to pick one. Oh, really? Yeah. I, you know, I said that and then I was like, no, our two things are Halloween and socialism. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess for our third purpose, we do, we do comedy news. We're like, we're like journalists for comedy. Um, no, I mean, I mean, we can either be funny or we can have uh, political opinions, but it's... Look, I made this decision a long time ago. <laughs> We're not telling you which one. 
fans, but we did. I, I can't say <laughs> it's a conflict of interest, but yeah, but uh, uh, Bernie Sanders official Twitter account has um followed Hannibal Burris. They followed him, he, I didn't know that. They followed him, and his original response was, Thanks, bro, but I'm still Yang Gang. Okay. That was his first response, and that was a few days ago. And you know, that alone is not newsworthy, you know, that's just a pithy comment from. Very funny comedian Hannibal Burris from Adult Swim and having a breakdown in Europe. <laughs> you know Hannibal Burris. Uh, the exciting news is today uh, Bernie Sanders said that we need universal rent protections and Hannibal oh, replied yeah. nope and then uh, offered a link to a landlord's union, <laughs> a landlord's foundation. Somewhere where you can donate to landlords who aren't even your landlord. Yeah. I mean, you could tell this was sort of like mon pop landlords who, you know, because the big the big boys have their own websites, they have their own lobbyists, they have like well-designed, handcrafted crap. Uh, but we forget that there are a lot of landlords out there who that's all they do is they just have right. many get... landlords are small operations and are also internationally touring comedians. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. What the fuck? Anybody Who's can renting... do it. It's not who really... is renting from Hannibal Burris. <laughs> I don't know. That would be so is Eric weird. Andre renting from Hannibal Burris. <laughs> <laughs> I would be... ranch. I, I would only imagine he just like bursts in on his tenants at odd hours of the night and is like, ask them to make him a grilled cheese or something. Dude, uh, this is the thing because I I love I love I Hannibal would love Burst. that I would be into that. Yeah, but like I've been listening to his albums for like ten years, and every single one of them has at least a five minute chunk on how he is just an unhinged human being, <laughs> <laughs> and he'll pass it off as really cool, but it'll be like. Yeah, I got stopped by the cops in Canada, so I asked them how much money they make and made fun of them for 45 minutes for being poor. <laughs> <laughs> that That's it. I feel a little conflicted about that one because they are Okay, because that one's cops. Okay, he has another one where he just harasses Scarlett Johansson. Like, like he, he uh, tells a story about how he did this or he just talks about her body? Both, but it's like the joke is like he Scarlett Johansson has the misfortune of showing up at a club where Hannibal Burris is there, and he just goes around behind her going Scarlett, oh Scarlett. And first of all, you're thinking like this isn't quite a joke, and I'm I'm beginning to worry this man may have access to people's rent. Yeah, he shouldn't. No one should. Uh, but I I remember. I have some I tea to like spill Google about. Time. I have some tea to spill about Hannibal. Uh, oh, I have heard a rumor. Okay, and this is going to get this is going to get is ugly. A this is an awful abuse of power. A thing that he does okay. is he will um, will talk to women and he'll and he'll bring them back to his place, wherever he's staying, or he'll go home with a woman and right. force them to watch his comedy. Is that true? I've heard that, heard that. Yeah, I've heard that from multiple sources. You feel comfortable sharing that on the radio? That's wild. It's a terrible. Yeah, it's it's a very serious accusation. Uh, but you that needs to be that type of behavior. I don't think we're going to quell unless people speak out about it. If you know a comedian <laughs> who does that to you, tweet Me about too. it. I had to watch a comedy special too. Tell somebody. Oh, it appears our, our guest oh. has arrived. Hey, oh, guys. hello, Daniel. Hey. Hello. 
Hey. All right. Well, we were just doing an intro for you, but uh, since you're here, I think we might we might we might just start the interview. Yes. Sweet. Welcome um, to the show. Um, hi, our guest hi. today is a professor uh, at the University of Washington, Daniel Bester. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, thanks for coming on. Yeah. So we oh, were just talking. We'll move on from Hannibal Burris now. <laughs> yeah. Well, we should get first. We we, we need to get your comment on uh, Hannibal Burris being a landlord. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh oh. Daniel has either frozen or just cannot believe we even brought this up. <laughs> <laughs> it really could go either way. I can't tell. Um, hmm. All right. Uh, please hold for technical difficulties. Here comes a new challenger. Okay. And we're back. We are joined by a professor, a uh, professor of American foreign policy at the University of Washington, Daniel Bestner. Thanks for joining us, Daniel. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. So we're just chatting about current events. Um, we're talking about Hannibal Burris. Uh, could we, before we get into the, the nitty gritty here, do you have any thoughts, perspectives on Hannibal Burris being a landlord? So, yeah, I was looking into it. So apparently he owns some apartments in, in Chicago. Is that what it is? Or in Illinois somewhere? Yeah. And he kicked some people out because he wanted to uh, turn into an Airbnb. Well, I guess I, my thoughts are celebrities are your class enemy almost necessarily. And uh, don't forget it. I guess that's my my thought on that one. Fair no enough. one on the Eric Andre show can be trusted. <laughs> <laughs> I've always said this. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's the that that's the, what's happening in the U.S. That's the uh, national <laughs> news here. Yeah, big the news. only thing <laughs> people are paying attention to. Uh, but around the world, we got some exciting stuff happening. There's uprisings happening in Chile, in Haiti, in Lebanon. Um, to what extent do you think these are sort of local phenomena? Uh, obviously, they have their own particular issues. Um, but how much of this do you think is a global trend? And where do you see that trend going. Yeah, well, it's almost like there's a common political economic uh, cause of these things, right? So I think it's ultimately two things. I think it's the um, the 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 uh, the hangover of this this global recession that was started ten years ago is really just. Uh, even though it happened a while ago, it's really starting to permeate all of these social structures the world over, right? So you have high unemployment everywhere. You have high youth unemployment in particular. You have high male youth unemployment in a lot of places. And this is ordinarily throughout history a recipe for a lot of social disaster and social protest. So on one hand, it, it's the obvious sort of political economic causes that I'm sure many people listening will, will be well aware of. Um, but beyond that, I think it's interesting to look at it, uh, look at it as something thing that's emerging from um, really what one might call the post-Cold post War order, right? So you have the Cold War, the Cold War ends, there's a particular constellation of forces that are, is really defined by the United States, and the United States is a world hegemon, it's military power, blah, blah, blah. But it's really in the last four or five years, in the wake of Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, uh, in the wake of the recession as well, that a lot of the um, legitimacy of the United States as a world uh, hegemonic actor has been uh, totally questioned. So there's a new opening for new types of alliances and new types of social protests that I think you're going to see come to the fore um, with all of the protests uh, that you mentioned from Chile to Beirut 
to Haiti and elsewhere. Uh, so I think you have basically the confluence of those two things, uh, economic cause and what might be called uh, the security foreign policy cause. And the question, of course, is how the people with actual military and physical power are going to respond to these things, right? You haven't seen massacres like you saw when, uh, uh, as Gaddafi did, when the Libyan protests broke out, or as Mubarak was perhaps thinking about uh, in Egypt, but this is still very much uh, an open question, I think. Right. Um, so Chile in particular, right now, obviously there's a history of U.S. intervention. Uh, it's it's a, you know, kind of was a test ground for neoliberalism in the 70s and 80s. Um, and now the protests are, are very strong. There's over a million people in the street. But there isn't, um, to my knowledge, a very strong sort of parliamentary articulation of that uh, uprising. There's not a lot of um, Chilean politicians who are really representing this sort of hardline anti-austerity point of view. Do you see that changing or do you think this is going to uh, remain a, a street movement for the foreseeable future? Well, I mean, frankly, I'm not a particular expert on, on Chile. Um, in, in, but in general, I think that um, throughout throughout Latin America, it, it has to essentially turn into some sort of uh, widespread violent protest for it to have the, the important longstanding effects that that other um, movements have had throughout throughout history. So in, in terms of the specifics of Chile, I don't know. But as you said, the fact that it's not articulated in, in any sort of electoral position leads me to believe that the protests are going to continue. And so then you have Again, the question is, what is the state going to do? Is the state going to do things like try to really impose a very strict martial law? Are they going to start uh, rounding up protest leaders? Are they going to start uh, really trying to use the physical power of the military or the police forces in order to clamp down on the protests? And if they do, then what do the protesters do in relation to that? So uh, the, the question you're ultimately asking is, is there some sort of pressure valve that's going to end the protests in a non-massacred, you know, non non-violent way? And it's difficult to know. I mean, historically, Latin American governments, most famously in the, in the Mexico massacre of 1968, have actually used military force to, to intimidate and to threaten um, what are generally young protesters. It hasn't happened yet in Chile, but I'm not sure that it... Um, that it won't. The the sad thing, though, and if, if we're thinking in terms of foreign policy, is the fact that all of these movements, I, I mean, there's clearly something global going on, but there aren't very strong transnational links between them, right? In an ideal world, these movements would be linked on institutionally in some meaningful sense where there'd be there'd be sending people there'd be sharing tactics they'd be sharing strategies and i'm sure there's some of that going on because of the internet and twitter and all that stuff um but it's not really yet an articulated movement and i think this is a problem that the left broadly speaking from the united states and and elsewhere throughout the world faces is that it, it, it's lack of sort of long-standing mature institutions to turn popular on uh, anger and unrest into into either policy gains or ideally some sort of new social order is quite limited right now so the question is what does that mean for the global left and the answer is uh, i don't really know but it's at least heartening that some people uh, throughout the world uh, not some people millions of people are expressing their anger at the status quo with some form of organized uh protest yeah i mean it's you know what's uh, interesting is uh you can remember just a few years ago for the Arab Spring, this, a similar kind of unrest was happening, but there was this kind of veneer on it. Like, look, people are using the internet and rising up and it's going to lead to a wellspring of democracy. And then fast forward just a little bit, 
there is no optimism anymore. <laughs> right. It's just a very kind of uh, you just kind of sit back and watch the fires at this point. It feels like. Yeah, and and this is this is the problem. I mean, like the problem with the internet generally. If you go back to the '90s, it's all these uh, anarchists talking about how the internet is going to, you know, radically democratize the world, and and frankly, would turn out to be a bunch of bullshit because uh, apparently the old power structures are still really important, right? Like actually controlling military and economic power is still really critical in terms of acting in the world. So the question is, and I mean, the question, if we're thinking broadly, is, is how, and this is like a huge strategic question that we don't have an answer to is is how do you connect this sort of popular anger with with a meaningful political uh, not even perform more revolution whatever you might want and i don't really know right it's a really difficult thing because what winds up happening whether it's the arab spring or whether it's you know the vietnam moratorium day is that these protest movements dissipate people go away they live their lives the state cracks down on them and then it ends so how do you turn this into a long-lasting uh reform or revolution is a really important open question that we should be uh, articulating and thinking as sort of lefties. Hmm. And what that is really interesting. So what are some potential uh, institutions that you know we should be working towards? Uh, something like an international union or something like uh, the World so- Social Forum? Uh, Do we need like a blog? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, that's what I was getting at. I think a blog would pretty much solve it you know uh if everyone smoked weed there'd be no war but i think that uh the the real the real thing to do is begin building connections right i I don't even think we're at the stage of thinking in terms of mature institutions uh i think we we've all got to come together at at convocations like the the internationals you know the old internationals of the 20th century uh not ruled in this case by a dictatorial authoritarian soviet union but in in a real democratic way and and in in a way that the representatives of, from places like the United States or elsewhere don't dominate the proceedings, which has also been something that's occurred throughout history when you've had these sorts of international uh, convocations, but uh, have them be truly democratic and begin sharing ideas, begin sharing personnel, begin sharing strategies and tactics. And from there, from the connections, from the people-people uh, connections, then you start talking about and articulating institutions. It's a generational project. Right. Yeah, I always found it very heartening to look back at the 30s and during the Spanish Civil War with with the international brigades, people coming from all over the world to, in that case, fight with with arms uh, against Franco. Um, But yeah, that would be cool to see something like that happening in places like Chile or uh, resisting Bolsonaro, Brazil uh, and elsewhere in the world. Uh, Who's our Ernest Hemingway? (laughs) Yeah. If if you had to pick one. Uh, Hannibal Buress. Uh, I, <laughs> <laughs> you know, one day maybe I would have thought that, but not anymore. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I think the thing that the, the whole Spanish Civil War thing was made possible because because all these people were really reading each other, right? There was a sense of international solidarity, um, and the Cold War really really, I mean, it killed the left in the United States, the organizational left, because the state made such an effort to destroy it. Uh, So I think we're just, we're really just now sort of rebuilding these types of important uh, connections without which it will be impossible to um, create these sorts of institutions that I'm talking about. Yeah. Well, something we like to talk a lot about on the show is World War One. We're big WW1 heads on Pod Damn America. Uh, our episode last week was all about it, and specifically, I guess, about how um, sort of like the Cold War, that was used as a way to really crush the left in America. Um, do you have any thoughts on that as well as 
how, I mean, obviously post World War One, we didn't have um, as much prestige as we got after the Second World War. But how did that sort of begin to set the stage uh, for American imperialism, the, the Wilson's uh, victory in, in 1918? Sure. Uh, that's a really important question. I'll get to it in a second. But one thing just related to the topic we were just talking about, um, World War One is actually a, a really critical moment in the international left, because if, if you look at what people yeah. were saying right before the war, the whole prediction was that the workers wouldn't fight each other, right? That right. some people, some accelerationists at the time were actually not so much in favor of war, but they thought that it would present an opportunity because once Germany declared war in France and Austria-Hungary and blah, 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 then the workers would all be like, forget this, we're going to not fight this war and we're going to come together. But the fact that they didn't really put a, a damper on sort of the, the idea of international solidarity that was that was popular in the period before 1914. So just to emphasize that essentially what I wanted to say is that the problems that we were just talking about really go back a very long time uh, to, the, to the beginning of the 20th century, if not earlier. So the idea is we have to figure out a way to actually get the solidarity so that when uh, the wars are declared, the working class doesn't go fight them for the rich. So just just wanted to highlight that. But in terms of America, I feel like we're America, about to crack it, though. Yeah, yeah, I think we're on the, we're on the verge. Absolutely. We've, we've got this one. Um, but in, in terms of the, the question about um, imperialism. Yeah. So so basically, just in brief, the, the modern era of U.S. imperialism begins really with the, the War of 1898, what, what people were probably taught uh, as the Spanish-American War between the Spanish Empire and the emergent American Empire. Uh, and of course, this isn't the first moment of American imperialism. You can, in fact, consider the entirety of Western expansion, would invo which involved the displacement of Native peoples, formerly, uh, not formerly, formally, uh, literally sovereign nations with which the United States have had treaties that it repeatedly broke as really the first classical era of American imperialism. But the first modern era really begins with the War of 1898 and the seizure of Puerto Rico and uh, the Philippines, of course, and, and various other Spanish territories, making Cuba essentially a protectorate of the United States in a meaningful way. Um, and so that was viewed literally as, as American imperialism. You know, Teddy Roosevelt, the Republican, is writing about this as a way to, you know, express your masculinity, all great empires, all great nation states become empires and they have territories. But what's really critical about Woodrow Wilson and World War One is that he provides American imperialism with a liberal sheen. He makes imperialism and liberalism go directly together. Because if you read Wilson's 14-point speeches or you read his ideas about peace without victory, he's essentially saying that the United States is going to emerge as the world's greatest liberal empire and it's going to use the principles of liberalism to bring peace and justice and democracy uh, to the rest of the world. And of course, this has a long history in the civilizing missions of the British and French empires, and there's an element of it even in the conquests of the Philippines and elsewhere. But it's really with Woodrow Wilson that, that this idea, idea of liberal imperialism which is still reflected in the writings of someone like Samantha Power and the policies of mm. Barack Obama, becomes re uh, really wedded in the American imagination. So in that sense, World War I is really critical for having this idea that the United States is going to save the world. And uh, what's what's important and what, what you just mentioned is that this idea of liberal empire came along very much and very consciously which, with domestic oppression, with the arresting of ethnic minorities, the arresting of socialists, the suspension 
suspension of, of habeas corpus in some cases, the opening of mail, all of these actions that were understood to be anti-democratic and illegal were taken during World War One in the name of the emergency of law. So what we have during and after World War One is the articulation of imperialism abroad and at home. And it shows that domestic oppression is directly linked to sort of the idea that the United States is going to be able to remake the world in a particular way, which is what Wilson did. And one more thing, and then I'll, I'll shut up, is that Wilson, an important thing to emphasize is that Wilson's um, notion that he would turn Eastern Europe into a series of nations is very much a reflection of his racism, being you know someone, a Democrat who grew up in the post-Civil uh, War, the Reconstruction Era South, who essentially believed that, that people of uh, the same races and ethnicities needed to be together. So he's also exporting with the idea of the creation of nation states in Eastern Europe, a very America, uh, uniquely American vision of sort of cultural and ethnic homogeneity, which again becomes dominant in the era of nation states after World War I. Yeah, just the blatant hypocrisy there on the part of Wilson to like preach democracy to the rest of the world while he's throwing people in jail for newspapers is just still astounding to this day. He has real startup guy energy, you know, <laughs> like half of his ideas are like super big picture stuff that's not grounded in reality yeah. at all. But he just has so much enthusiasm for it. You're like, sure. A nation just for Kurds. <laughs> yeah, and he also has uh, Joe Biden energy. The last six months of his presidency, he was essentially incapacitated too, right? So we 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 fantastic. <laughs> so we've got a lot of uh, you know uh, uh, foreshadowing of what we're experiencing today today with basically uh, senile or senescent leaders uh, governing the world, right? And uh, since you're a historian, I'm going to assume you probably don't like counterfactuals, but uh, we were <laughs> dipping our toes into this a little bit last week um, about, you know, what would have happened if the U S hadn't entered. And, you know, someone was pointing out after the fact that um, France had already kind of said that they would, you know, they had said behind the scenes that they would lock it up if uh, they would pack it up and, and, you know, sign a treaty with Germany if uh, America didn't enter. What, implication do you think that would have had that that's really interesting um and actually i don't mind counterfactuals because i think they allow you to think it in uh, good <laughs> yeah good. they're fun they're, they're fun, fun. I was, uh, yeah i i would never get a job as a professor but if i did that's all i would do was just do a class about what if it's, it's, it's good it's, you're up for it because he can't help himself <laughs> uh well i i think you two things well most importantly obviously the treaty of versailles would have been different right and so you would have removed that whatever treaty would have been signed you would have removed things like the war guilt clause which became very important in 1920s weimar era germany uh in terms of providing What's the war war guilt clause yeah so the treaty of, oh i see okay, okay. yeah so that, germany Ger punishing germany for starting okay well they actually said germany was was formally guilty for World War One, and ah. like it's bl it was blamed for World War One, which becomes a very important um, uh, propaganda uh, item in, in 1920s Germany for uh, basically anti-democratic forces, uh, uh, particularly on the right and particularly the Nazis. So you you would get rid of that. Um, you would get rid of sort of the humiliation of Germany with the reduction of the army to 100,000 people, the occupation of the rural region, Germany's industrial heartland. Um, now the question is, uh, is there actually no Weimar Republic? Does Germany remain some sort of empire with Kaiser Wilhelm 
realm the second uh and then you know you still have these empires you still have the age of empires and people fighting um so you know does the european aristocracy in central and eastern europe not really end and so if that doesn't happen what what are the political constellations look like i think it, it's pretty difficult uh to tell what that would actually look like. I think you'd get uh, actually probably the expansion of British and French imperialism uh, and German imperialism uh, around the world, a continuation of that, as opposed to it being the first sign in the death knell of those empires. But uh, I think you'd also get, if the United States doesn't enter the war, I'm not sure the United States and various other powers, for example, invade the early Soviet Union You know, mm -hmm. uh, during and after the Soviet Civil War. So if there's no invasion, no basically Western invasion of the Soviet Union, does that mean that Lenin and the early Soviet groups aren't as vicious and brutal in the ways that they were, right? Does Russia actually, sorry, does not Russia, does the Soviet Union actually have a, a chance to consolidate its power in a meaningful way? And most importantly, are the seeds of the Cold War not planted, right? Because the Soviet mm -hmm. Union, one of the major reasons it will never trust the United States is because the United States invaded it, right? Uh, and it's in its in the years of its earlier infancy. So you have a totally different constellation of what post-war Europe is, and what that looks like, I think, is really difficult to actually you know play out. Uh, well, can you talk a little bit more or about that? Because that's something we definitely don't learn in uh, U.S. history classes. The the troops that were sent in what was it, nineteen nineteen, I yeah. believe, to for the counter revolutionary uh, effort in in the USSR. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's basically that the, the United States and other Western allies essentially fund anti Soviet forces, and they literally send troops. Um, I forget the exact year, nineteen twenty, maybe even a little bit into twenty one. Uh, but they're essentially trying to uh, destabilize uh, the Soviet Union, right? They're trying to end the experiment in communism uh, for a variety of reasons. One, communism was viewed, uh, you know, as as antithetical uh, and anathema to capitalism. But even beyond that, with the imperialism of Wilson. Wilson's not only speaking for Europe at this point, he's really trying to export quote unquote democracy uh, to the rest of the world. So very early on, you know, the, the, the idea that some historians have argued in 1918, 1919, there's a choice in what will soon become the post-colonial world, the decolonizing world among people like Mao and Ho Chi Minh is should they go with Wilson or should they go with Lenin? Right. And mm -hmm. so what they were trying, that's the, that's the big choice in 1919. If you're thinking about, you hate the British, you hate the French, right? Are you going to be a liberal or are you going to be a communist? And so that whole constellation changes if the United States doesn't actually enter World War One and doesn't adopt this total global vision of what it wants to do uh, in the world. Wow. So that was sort of their, what was it? Twilight Taylor versus, uh, Robert Pattinson. Yes, that's right. That was their Twilight Taylor versus <laughs> right. Robert Pattinson. Yeah, took the words right out of that's right what it is. Uh, that is the title of your thesis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's Twilight. To just repeat it, Taylor versus Robert Pattinson. Uh, that shows yeah. you how in touch um, I am with uh, yes, our, our the culture of the youth, future Batman. Yeah, I with think. a movie that came out in like 2007. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just one very very quick thing. And so, for example, Ho Chi Minh actually tries to meet with Wilson, right? And Wilson really? doesn't meet with him. Yeah. Mm. And so there are these all these like wacky things happening, and could have taken a totally different direction if the U.S. doesn't enter the war. And do you think that would have made a revolution in Germany more difficult? 
because that's something they you know they tried to kick off uh, right after the war. Right. So that is partially caused by food shortages, right? Mm. The various revolutions throughout Germany and Berlin and the north and Bavaria, um, that's caused by the depredations of war. And if the war doesn't lead to that, you know, it's very late in the war. If that doesn't happen, are there those food shortages and are there those riots? Tough to know. Yeah. Maybe this is cynical of me, but I just would assume if America doesn't enter the war, World War One de-escalates and we still live in an empire age, you still get the same breaking point just 10 years later with something else, right? I think so. I think I think I don't think the Euro- European aristocracy was along for the world. Uh, the bourgeoisie was going to assert itself somehow. Didn't have to be in the, the, the violent, you know, conflagration of World War One. It could have been something else. But yeah, I don't think. I don't think the empires would have lasted forever and probably not even very long. Hmm. Um, well, speaking of Weimar era Germany, this is something you've written a bit about uh, because especially, you know, around the time Trump was elected, there's uh, comparisons all the time here in the U.S. about America and the Weimar Republic saying that, you know, this, this is almost a carbon copy of what happened back then. Um, obviously it's not the same, but there are maybe some lessons we can glean here and there, uh, when we're comparing the U S and, and Weimar Republic, what are the similarities and, and what are the differences? Um, so th- the differences are, 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 at least in my opinion, uh, pretty, pretty stark. It's difficult to appreciate the total social collapse of Germany in the 1920s, right? You have a totally new political system. You have a bunch of people across the political spectrum who fundamentally rejected democracy, right? Like, you know, in America, there are people who fundamentally reject democracy, but there's a general idea that democracy, even if we don't actually live by it, is a social good. This wasn't true in Weimar Germany. You had people who, on the left and the right, who um, the communists on the left and the fascists and nationalists on the right, who either wanted to destroy uh, uh, democracy and replace it with a proletarian revolution, if you're a Leninist, if you're a communist, if you're a member of the KPT, or if you're a national uh, conservative, you want to bring back the monarchy, or if if you're Hitler, you want to basically create a a new fascist state. And those sorts of constellations, the fundamental distrust of democracy just doesn't uh, exist in the United States. Another big difference is that the hyperinflation of Germany between roughly 1920 and 1924 there's just no parallel. You know, the, the levels of unemployment, the, the, the inflation where money is literally meaningless and you, people were using it as wallpaper or, or to burn it for, uh, for heat. Nothing like that really exists in a, meaning, in, a, in, a, in a meaningful way. Also in Germany, you have to remember the industrial heartland, right? What used to be, what is now the Rust Belt, but what used to be the industrial heartland of the United States. In Germany, that area, the Ruhr region was occupied, right? Um, for, for, for a few years and you had a, a guerrilla warfare there. So it's Dif- uh, it's difficult to, to draw uh, the one-to-one comparison, so I just wanted to emphasize those differences. Um, in terms of similarities, I think you could say there was a lot of inequality in Germany, right? There, there was a general sense that the, the, the system wasn't really working out um, for everyone. So that is, is, is roughly similar, but in my opinion, I wrote this article in Jacobin right after Trump was elected. I think in, 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 when we're thinking about Weimar, I think its most potent use in the United States has actually been by liberals who throughout the mm-hmm. 20th century have appealed to Weimar 
in order to justify anti-democratic actions. So, for example, when people are crazy, yeah, oh, good. Well, hopefully, let's see if I can bring it home. So, when people were uh, creating the national security state in the late 1940s, you know, the CIA, uh, the National Security Council, the NSC, uh, the Department of Defense, these are all creations of the late 1940s. And a lot of people at the time, people like Henry Wallace, who was FDR's vice president and actually the editor of the New Republic for a time, people like that were like, this is not okay. Okay, right. This is totally militaristic. This is uh, a state that's going to destroy democracy. Uh, this is a state that's going to basically turn America against itself, and we're going to be in an era of permanent war. And it turns out that he was right. But the way that people actually justified these anti-democratic actions was that they appealed to the Weimar Republic, and they said, "Listen, I wish." I could trust American people. I really wish I could. But if you look at the experience of the first half of the 20th century, what you see is what do the people do? The people vote for Hitler, right? Literally, that's what was used. The people vote for Hitler. And this was important because you got to remember a bunch of the American elites, the people who are making the national security state in the 40s, literally spent time in Germany in the 20s, right? If you're an elite American, you go to Germany and you actually study at German universities. So George Kennan, one of his first things that he did, one of his first posts was in Weimar, Germany. So to people like Kennan, to these really influential figures, uh, the Weimar Republic demonstrated that you couldn't trust democracy, you couldn't trust ordinary people, and so you needed to create institutions that actually removed people from the policymaking process. And this throughout the 20th century second half. You constantly see Weimar invoked in this way. When there's student protests against Vietnam in 1960s, oh no, it's the Weimar Republic. When anyone questions American foreign policy in the 1980s and the Soviet Union still is viewed as powerful, oh no, it's the Weimar Republic. And when Trump's elected, oh no, it's the Weimar Republic. So I think that what you have to do is be careful about using what I call the Weimar analogy because historically mm -hmm. that analogy has been used to actually limit democratic participation in American politics. Yeah, it's funny because the person I've heard do that the most is I think Rand Paul. He'll say that a lot. Yes, it's like yes. whenever he's talking about, you know, cutting spendings, like we have to do this because one day we're going to have hyperinflation if we centralize the economy too much. When his neighbor breaks into his house, <laughs> beat him. Yeah. It's like the Weimar Republic. It, it, it's true. And also Madeleine Albright, she wrote that book, Fascism, or Timothy Snyder, this uh, historian at Yale, or yeah. I don't know if you guys know Yasha Monk. He basically made his whole career arguing in favor of uh, it's, it's always Weimar. And this has become basically a liberal trope. Um, so, you know, when people, when people say Weimar, I reach for my Browning, I think as Herman Goering <laughs> <laughs> once said, right. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a bad news generally. Nice. Extra brownie points for doing the Brecht reference. Um, <laughs> it's so strange how that's twisted to become like a failure of democracy when the Weimar Republic, I mean, if you just look at it, what's the first thing you know about the Weimar Republic is it's like it's supposed to be a democracy devoid of resources, right? Yeah. Right, right. I don't know. You'd think that would be the line. I don't well, know. but when it was founded, the whole idea was that we're going to make a, a U.S. style democracy here, right? Yeah, or a, a parliamentary style democracy. Parliamentary, yeah. More, more British style parliament. It's not a presidential system. Sure. But not only that, people always say Hitler was elected. Hitler actually wasn't elected. Hitler was right. appointed by a collection of German industrialists. And, and basically aristocratic Junkers. Uh, so like the fundamental thing is that Hitler actually wasn't elected, uh, which, pe <laughs> which people often forget.
Well, do you think you could turn this around and say Weimar is an example for what happens when you don't have enough democracy? Yeah, well, I think that's true. And uh, to really put you know a historical point on it, uh, the Weimar Republic essentially became what historians term a presidential dictatorship in 1930. Um, the president of Germany, pre-Hitler, for three years before Hitler, uh, actually ruled as essentially a dictator, right? So, so well before Hitler, democracy was was reduced, and I think that's actually one of the reasons that Hitler was able to be so successful. Mm. I would warn against your ability to actually argue with anybody bringing up the Weimar Republic because they probably are not actually interested in your opinion. <laughs> I think that's probably true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So usually a straw man. Um, so, well, I mentioned a Rand earlier, Rand Paul, uh, <laughs> but there is another Rand that you have written, written quite a bit about. And I believe you have a book. You're working on a book now about the Rand Corporation, sort of an innocuous sounding uh, institution, but it has a, a pretty storied history in America and sort of began post-World War II. Can you talk a bit about American power after the Second World War and sort of the growth of the defense intellectual uh, complex? Sure. Uh, so uh, it's difficult to overstate just how powerful America was after World War II, right? I think I think this is the right statistic. It roughly controlled 50% of world production, something along those lines, right? Because you have a pre-industrial po- po- decolonizing world, a process of decolonization, and Europe has immiserated itself. So the United States, uh, right after World War II, the elites essentially decide that we could never allow this to happen and that the only way that world peace and security is going to to to, to be something that we'll see in our lifetimes is for the United States to totally dominate the world. It's going to dominate the world. It's going to have the, the largest military. It's going to start expanding its base system so that planes could refuel, so that it could threaten literally everywhere on the world, uh, and of course, the Soviet Union, but, but also elsewhere. And so you get the rise of, of this national security state where the, the logic of the American government becomes the logic of governing the world. But the problem is, is that the United States had never really developed the area knowledge, the knowledge of other spaces or the intellectual uh, capacities to actually govern the world. Uh, after World War I, it retreated into a period of, of not really isolationism, what's better referred to as neutrality, uh, but it wasn't really funding you know, knowledge about other areas of the world. It wasn't really funding um, knowledge about how to strategically organize the world. So what you have after World War II is that the American state is like, well, we used all of these scientists during the war. You know, they created the atom bomb. They created radar. Radar is an invention of World War II. They created proximity fuses. They created proto-computers, right? So we need to incorporate scientists. We also need to incorporate social scientists, right? We're going to fight psychological warfare. So we need to we need to know uh, we need to have psychologists. We're going to try to subvert the Soviet Union. So we need sociologists to learn how the Soviet Union is organized. So we know the weak points to hit. We're going to learn about foreign cultures and try to dominate, win the hearts and minds of what was then emerging as the third world. So we need anthropologists. So what the United States does is that it begins to incorporate intellectuals into its state structure. Now, the problem is is that the United States, as you guys both know, is very much a private enterprise place, right? It's not going to want to create, you know, the government, the Ministry of Social Science or the Ministry of Natural Science. So what it does is that it actually uses the uh, the the implement of the contract, right? 
the United States actually fought World War II, particularly scientifically, not by incorporating scientists specifically into the state, but by contracting with scientists at places like MIT, uh, at places like Caltech, at places like Harvard. So they weren't formally part of the state, but they were using state money. So what happens after World War II is that they use the same mechanism to create quote-unquote independent uh, organizations like the Rand Corporation, which are not actually part of the state but are almost funded solely with state money. And it's at places like the Rand Corporation that the natural scientists and the social scientists that I just talk about come together and they essentially begin creating the ideas that, that literally make the American empire possible. So for example, uh, elites, you know, military officers and government officials, they want bases, but where the hell do you place your bases? They go to Rand for that question, right? We, we want to have nuclear propulsion of aircraft, but we don't have the intellectual capacity to do that, you go to RAND for those sorts of questions, right? The, the, another thing they, they actually researched was uh, a death ray. Right, we want to be able to beam, you know, uh, energy uh, over uh, across the continents to kill people. We'll go to Rand for things like that. So you have the creation of an institution like the Rand Corporation, where all these people come together to fight uh, the, the the Cold War. But again, what I want to emphasize is this is what is so interesting about the American state, and what the left is going to have to deal with it is that the American state, in some regards, is actually pretty weak. What it does is that it contracts out a lot of its functions. Functions, you know, and by contracting, it actually makes these functions um, unaccountable to either Congress or the public, right? And more recently, you see it by the fact that the United States uses an enormous amount of mercenaries to fight its wars. You know, most right. of them are veterans, but they're they're fighting their wars with literal mercenaries. So you have the creation after World War II of this contract state of which the Rand Corporation is a part. Hmm. Okay. I'm sorry, I have to interject here. Can we go back to the death ray just for like a second? <laughs> yeah, sure. So did what? Did we get one? <laughs> we we did not. Did I miss something? <laughs> we we did not get one, but a lot of money was spent on it, right? Because right. you also have to remember, after World War II, like there's an incredible sense of accomplishment because the United States had defeated the instantiation of evil in Nazi Germany. So what they really thought they could do everything. So you have the funding of a bunch of these wacky projects, in addition to the death way, which is like the most outstanding of these, you also have a lot of money spent on handwriting analysis, right? You're going to see if, if Stalin is hypnotizing people by examining their handwriting. And a lot of these wacky projects are funded by the US government uh, after World War II. And we frankly, we don't even know the half of it because a lot of this stuff remains classified. You know, I always get a military project funding is always the most fun thing to dive into. Like I always bring up on this show when they were uh, developing napalm propulsion and then just were strapping it to bats for a while. Oh, oh yeah. They couldn't figure it out. Oh, yeah. But uh, it's just so great to ha like put a face to the <laughs> F-35 of the 1950s. Yeah. Where did all the money go? You know? Yeah. Well, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Please. I was just, and the scientists, like they took advantage of this, right? I mean, unsurprisingly, they thought a lot of the military elite were pretty stupid. So what they would do is that they would sort of like create these fanciful projects in order to get money to, to work on what they actually wanted to. And another thing that finally, one thing I want to quickly emphasize is that a lot of the guys that ran, you might be surprised to learn, especially the early people in the 40s and the 50s, were self-avowed socialists, right? Like nice. they really consider themselves oh these, my God. Yeah, to be social democrats. <laughs> 
Uh, and what they were doing, they're like, we could be social democrats at home, but we'll have to dominate the world or there'll be a Hitler or there'll be a Stalin. And not only were they social democrats, they were kind of like avant-garde people. So the guys that ran before LSD became a thing in the 60s, in the 50s, they were like taking acid and driving down the PCH, the Pacific Coast Highway, at like 80 miles per hour in their convertibles. So they were very much like avant-garde people who liked Lenny Bruce, who liked jazz, and they considered themselves to be part of this like progressive project to govern the world. It's hard to see, think of now, but that's really what they thought they were doing. And was a lot of that because they had just defeated fascism? Exactly, right. This, this really okay. made them think that the American state could be used for good. Like yeah. that does give you a pass, I guess. <laughs> the one, or I guess, not a pass, but you could convince yourself maybe the death ray has a good function later. <laughs> uh, so yeah, a lot of this is in the fifties, and I'm wondering how much dissent there was in American discourse. Was like I, I'm a big fan of um, all people who lost the election. Uh, was Adlai Stevenson? somebody who was speaking out against all the spending or, or was there really any anybody like voicing a problem with it? So basically by the Korean War, uh, there is dissent. Um, but the real era of possibility is between 1945 and June 1950. Once the Korean War breaks out, which is generally read in the United States as a communist attack on an American ally, the, the discourse really closes and then McCarthyism really ends it. So to even be in the American state after, you know, 52, 53, you kind of have to buy into everything. So like Henry Wallace never really has an, a, a particularly important position after, after that time. Um, even someone like George Kennan, who started off very much aggress uh, as, a, as an aggressive Cold Warrior, kind of turns against it in the early 50s. And he also, you know, falls out of favor. So there's a, a process of sorting between 1950, 1953, 1954, that actually makes it uh, difficult uh, for you to be a dissenter within the United States. And this is really fucked up because I think, at least personally, uh, that the Cold War um, could have ended in 1955. So Stalin dies in 1953. Really? Yeah. So Stalin dies in 1953. And, like, you know, for a lot of people, it would have been tough to make a deal with Stalin. Fine, whatever. I think you could have, but, but fine. Um, but in 1955, the Soviet Union is actually like, eh, we don't really want to fight this thing with the United States. So they call something uh, called the Geneva Conference, which is the first time all the leaders of the, the great powers meet since basically the, post, the immediate post-World War II era. And the Soviet Union actually makes serious overtures to the United States like – we're, we're going to end this. We'll have mutual inspections, blah, blah, blah. We're going to end the Cold War. And the United States beforehand is like going into the conferences like we refuse to make any deal with the Soviet Union. We're just going to use it as a propaganda moment, right? We're going to use it to try to justify what we're doing. So it's actually pretty tragic that all of this dissent was kicked out right before the moment when you could have had a, a, a military end to the Cold War. Wow. Uh Damn. So that's, yeah, that's just, what do you, what else can you say? <laughs> <laughs> um, but we, by the end of the fifties though, uh, this is something that's brought up a lot, uh, particularly when people like want to do things like cut defense spending, they'll point to Eisenhower, who of course gave his farewell address. He mentioned the military industrial complex. He had that quote about how, you know, we should be spending more money on hospitals instead of weapons of war. But what was like the full picture there? Because he he obviously, you know, is not a, a peacenik. Um, 
was was his real what were his real objection because if heard some suggest that that may have been more because he didn't want uh private companies um creating these weapons and all these things he just he wanted it to be under the the thumb of the state yeah well it, it's interesting because very few presidents did as much as eisenhower to create the military industrial complex right so you have this irony so eisenhower is pretty much an early 20th century conservative is that he he ideologically theoretically at least believes in small government and that the government shouldn't be spending billions of dollars on building arms right but he's also a world war ii and Cold War president, where he truly, at the same time, believes that the Soviet Union, and particularly atomic weapons, represents an existential threat to the United States. So throughout his term, he vacillates between these two areas, between wanting to cut military spending or fight fight, uh, fight the Cold War on the cheap, right? He doesn't want to have a massive army. He wants to fight you know, mutually assured destruction. He wants to fight the Cold War through, through deterrence with nuclear weapons. But at the same time, he's spending an enormous amount on research and development for weapons and weapon systems and give, funneling all this money to private corporations. So I think there's a dialectic within Eisenhower himself where he's unsure of where he, he aligns, right? And it's not, uh, it's not for nothing that it was in his farewell address that he warns <laughs> against the military industrial complex right and one thing i want to add is that the first thing he warns about is the military industrial complex that's what we all remember do you know the second thing he warns about the scientific technological elite i.e mm. defense intellectuals so he's like we have companies dun, dun, dun. yeah exactly we have companies creating weapons and we also have all of these scientists devoting all of their intellectuals to creating weapons as opposed to you know fighting poverty or whatever or whatever it may be so these things go together from the beginning and i think this is what the left needs to recognize is that the military industrial complex goes together with what i call the military intellectual complex and in that they reinforce each other the military industrial complex builds the weapons but the military intellectual complex places like rand the center for strategic and international studies the council on foreign relations it's those guys who determine where the weapons are actually deployed so you need to focus on both um, as a problem hmm. they don't get the same spotlight do they they do not <laughs> <laughs> they do not um, so we, we want to wrap up the next 10 minutes or so anders did you want to bring this back to current day yeah we should probably do that although i would love to ask more i, I want to get more info about what Adlai Stevenson's stance on this was. Um, so basically, just very brief, yes. he's an international organization guy, right? Okay. So the, the dissent that you have within the state, you know, you're not talking about not fighting the Soviet Union. You're not talking really about not fighting the Cold War. What you're saying is that there should be some sort of international organization leading to some sort of uh, international encomium, leading to some sort of world government that will be able to, over time, decrease tensions between the two great powers. And from my sense, that's where Stevenson aligns, right? Mm. A, he's a UN guy, right? He wants international organization uh, to do these things. Well, that uh, turns out to be a, a pretty good segue, I think, until um, the future. Uh, and you've written a lot about what a socialist foreign policy could look like in the United States. Um, what would the role for an institution like the UN be if we were to have a, a president, Bernie Sanders? What, um, <laughs> how many of these institutions would we want to scrap uh, and how many would we try to like reform? 
Well, the, the, this is the tough thing. I mean, it, it, in theory, the UN's not not a bad idea, right? Right. I, it's a pretty good idea. The, the problem is that it's been used for seventy years uh, as a cover for American hegemony, and and the problem is that a lot of people in the in the what, what we call the global South view it as such. Um, so the question really is: Could we reform the UN um, or, or any of the you know the the uh, number of international organizations, or are they so uh, discredited and so delegitimized in the eyes of most of the world that we won't be able to actually uh, do that? And I think that's the big question. And the only way we're going to answer that, uh, or the only way a President Bernie would answer that, is by actually soliciting the opinions of the rest of the world. Mm. Now. The problem is the rest of the world consists of people like Victor Orban, uh, Duterte, and uh, Bolsonaro, right? So that's another problem because ideally what we would have wanted to do for the past 70 years as leftists is build organic connections to people on a sub-governmental level so we don't have to rely totally on a Bolsonaro or an Orban when we're determining things like do we scrap or do we reform the United Nations? The problem is we don't have that, right? So essentially, I, I see Bernie as the first step on an unfortunately long path to actually making international organizations more democratic and more accountable uh, to the global population, which is what uh, we need to do. And in doing so, we need to reconceive of things like the fact that the United States, which is you know four percent of the world's population, uh, consumes an enormous amount of the world's goods. Um, so I think these things are actually really important to think about. Yeah. Well, yeah. Kind of a spooky note to end on for our Halloween episode. <laughs> um, yeah, so I last night I actually went to a talk with Grace Blakely, who wrote – she's a British uh, economist. And she wrote this book, um, Stolen, uh, and she was talking about how you know there's a little bit – there can be some alarmism when we talk about a, a potential President Bernie and, and a, um, a, with things like a capital strike or capital flight, you know, the banks would try to sabotage the economy. And she was basically saying that, and this is sort of particular to the U.S., but we kind of set the rules for if you, if you're a bank, if you want to become a bank, you got to go through us. Like we we decide what is a bank, what's not a bank. We the the state can do whatever it wants to the banking sector. What we really need to be worried about is the political fallout uh, from a, a Sanders administration. What are the implications there that we should be attuned to? And would it, how ugly do you think it would get? Would, is there something on the scale of a, a coup that could happen here? Yeah, well, uh, that would be interesting. I mean, historically speaking, at least, presidential systems are, are more prone to coups uh, than not. They're, they're pretty unstable political systems. And the United States is fairly unique in the world that has never experienced one. But at the same time, um, I'm not sure the military, it, it would really have to be a military thing. And I'm not sure the American military is going to go in and try to uh, overtake Bernie, what what I'm most worried about is that there's some sort of recession inherent in capitalism and that discredits socialism for a generation, that there's some sort of horrible economic thing, which which we're probably going to get given the amount of debt and the amount of, you know, uh, spending that that um, people, you know, people are never going to pay back their credit card or student loan debt and that 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 it's just chickens going to come home to roost at some point. Um, and so. Um, I think we, we really need to worry about that. And that would be a political uh, fallout that, that I think could last generations. Mm -hmm. And that's something really important. Yeah, that's spooky as well. Um, well 
Well, there's nothing you can really do about it is kind of the thing because the, the inherent system is eventually this is all going to crash. I've been sitting in a WeWork all week. I've never felt less financially stable. <laughs> That's happening now. So it's not like you don't want to be like you don't want to take power because of a recession. You just have to just ride it out either way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, yeah. I I don't want to wish a recession on anyone, but like ideally, please don't. It would happen uh, like before he got elected, and then and not after. Um, or or he could use it as you know a real revolutionary exactly, moment in yeah. trying to change the political economy in a meaningful way. Yeah. I think that it it also presents a a real moment of opportunity. You know, it might it might could be a, a way to reorganize. You know, Obama could have nationalized the banks. Bernie would. Uh, right. So that could be a good thing. Exactly. Uh, fingers crossed. <laughs> fingers crossed for a recession. Good note to end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All no. Right. I. To be clear, I don't. I do not want that to happen. Um, it's gonna happen. <laughs> it will. Yes. But it's still gonna be bad. Uh, last question. So anti-imperialism. The history of it in the U.S. is it's a long one, and it's often a very uh, contentious one. There's a lot of sect infighting. Um, there's still to this day quite a bit of sectarianism. Uh, you know, it's very disappointing to me, disheartening a lot of the time when I'll see people who agree on the larger point that the U.S. needs to scale back its presence in the world. Uh, but then they get really hyper focused on one particular issue and, you know, Syria, not that that's not important, but uh, a lot of times I feel like there's a lot of infighting that um, is counterproductive. How do you think the left can avoid that and sort of uh, work together to have a, a new economic order and a social democracy in places like the U.S. that doesn't depend on a, a global empire? I think we need to recognize first and foremost, the, the way that I put it, you know, like Rome wasn't built in a day and, and Rome's not going to be taken down in a day. So right. I think we, we have to we have to recognize that, you know, drawing down the 800 military bases that the United States has, drawing down, you know, the over $750 billion uh, defense budget and, and dealing with how that's going to affect a lot of local communities is going to take a, a while. So I think we need to uh, be ready for the long haul. And like you said, not get distracted isn't the right word, but not get like hyper-focused on issues, on tactical issues, and lose uh, sight of the larger strategy, which is to truly begin drawing down this empire that's been built over the last 70 years. Um, the, also with recognizing that is that there's going to be a lot of, uh, to use economists speak, suboptimal outcomes when that happens, right? The United States has made a lot of promises and if the left is serious, it's not gonna be able to keep a lot of those promises. So the question is, how are we gonna be able to do things like security transition? So to take one example, none of us want a cold war with China, right? But the, the left has, sorry, the left, the United States has guaranteed the security of Japan and South Korea and Indonesia and Taiwan for quite a long time. Right. So what is the removal of American bases and American troops and American aircraft carriers from East Asia actually look like? How are we going to do that in a meaningful way where, you know, China doesn't then just start wars? And I think like no one wants China to, you know, overtake uh, other countries in the region. So how are we going to have some form of meaningful security transition that defends allies who we've made promises to while also removing the United States from this region? It's not an easy question, right? Yeah. You know, maybe you do say we're going to have to take the risk that China is going to start a war with Japan or South Korea, right? Maybe you do say that. But the thing is, 
it's it's uh, it's a series of questions for which there are no good answers, and and knowing that going in is, I think, really important. Yeah. So I'm wondering because I I had the opportunity uh, to ask Congressman Rokana, friend of the show. I had a, a chance to ask him a question uh, about this this precise issue, um, and you know I tried to preface it by saying like you know there are geostrategic implications to just um, coming home from everywhere. But do you envision a world where we don't have foreign bases on foreign soil? The United States is no longer an empire. And he, he wouldn't commit to that. He said no, that he doesn't um, hold that as a, as a value. Is, do you think something like that should be a litmus test for left-wing politicians we support? So this is where I think we have to distinguish between our utopian visions of the world and, and politics. Mm-hmm. So he's a politician. So he's he's got a lot of constituencies um, and 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 basically stakeholders that he has to deal with in order to one maintain his representative seats and then to rise further and, and get in a position of power. Um, so uh, in terms of a litmus test, I don't think you're going to get it. I, I think you'll be constantly disappointed if in 2020, 2021, you're asking lefty politicians if the United States should have no foreign bases and you're expecting yes. Um, now, for me, I think the United States should have no foreign bases, but I'm a professor and I'm not held to the, to the same, you know, I, I'm not under the same pressures as politicians. But I would say the idea would be to make that be a litmus test in 10, 15 years mm. to actually start getting rid of bases now so that it becomes, um, you know, the Overton window is expanded in a meaningful enough way where someone like Roe would be able to say, you know, I'm going to get rid of all of the bases over time. The United States has made these positive moves in this direction, and it's clear there's not going to be a World War III if we don't have 800 military bases abroad. I think what we have to do as an organized left, both, you know, uh, uh, lefties who would serve in government or NGOs, and also just, you know, the left-wing movement, we need to hold politicians accountable. And by saying, we're, we're going to make this a priority. And right now, frankly, the organized left hasn't really made the removal of American military bases a priority like it's made yeah. Medicare for all a priority, right? right? So you can't expect Roe without any sort of organic movement from below to start going out and saying we're going to get rid of all the bases. It's up to us to provide him the cover to say something like that. Mm. But it- I think my suggestion to Roe would be instead of being a politician to be a professional podcaster where you can co-sign wild shit all the time <laughs> with no consequences. Yeah, that's a good suggestion. <laughs> it's great. We should just give all power to the UN, make a giant internationalist space federation. <laughs> there you go. I just said it and it, there will be no problems later for it. Perfect. <laughs> That'd be cool. All right. A good note to end on. Uh, <laughs> Daniel Bestner, you know, I always, I've, I've been waiting for years to find a historian that will let me indulge them with uh, counterfactuals. <laughs> so uh, very excited to finally meet one. Um, th- where can people find you? Uh, yeah, well, you could find me on Twitter at D Bessner. And uh, if you can, uh, if you could buy my book, gets into a lot of these issues. Yes. It's called, uh, it's called Democracy in Exile. On Spire and the Rise of the Defense Intellectual. It's about 25 bucks. All right. Thanks so much for coming on. This is fantastic. Yeah. yeah thanks so much, guys. I appreciate uh, yeah. it. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. That was Daniel Bessner. 
And uh, that's going to be it for us. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Patak Jokes. I'll have all my shows up there if you ever want to see me do comedy. And then listen to my other podcast, Balling Out Super. Anders, you had some plugs? Yes, at Anders Lee here on Twitter. Redacted Tonight is my other job. And um, there's an election going to happen in December in the UK. And something very exciting, Momentum, um, the, the pressure group that supports Jeremy Corbyn, is asking Americans, specifically DSA members, to help them uh, get labor in, in power. Um, and you can find out more about how to help. Uh, they need help with phone banking, text banking, and research. So they just need people to dig up info on conservative candidates and find all the racist things they've said. Uh, won't <laughs> be hard. Um, and if you're interested in that, you can go ahead and email Rosie Carter Rich. Her uh, email address is Rosie, R-O-S-I-E dot Carter uh, hyphen Rich, R-I-C-H at peoplesmomentum.com. That's Rosie dot Carter hyphen Rich at peoplesmomentum.com. Do it. Go dig up some fun British style slurs on the opposition. <laughs> you have the time. What are you waiting for? Yeah. All right. That's going to be us for another week. And this is sign out number three. It's finished. It's finished. <laughs>